Welcome to episode 44 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Intact REM sleep facilitates adaptive fear extinction. So it facilitates that process of learning the car isn't really scary after all. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we'll continue our conversation on sleep with Professor Sean Drummond, a cognitive neuroscientist and clinical psychologist at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. In part two, we'll cover the relationship between sleep and mental illness. We explore fear-based disorders like PTSD and anxiety disorders, the classical mood disorders like depression and bipolar. We discuss the two-way street between these conditions and sleep, We talk about the golden standard in treating sleep disorders, CBTI, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy for Insomnia, and where and how to get support. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au, a modern and approachable mental health directory, helping Australians connect with the right mental health practitioners. All the practitioners are available to see clients straight away. There are no waiting lists. They're all independent, licensed and insured, and available for online or in-person consultations. On TalkLink, you can watch a short video of each therapist to get to know them a little and check out their training and experience, as well as their pricing in a transparent way to decide if this is someone that you would like to connect with. You can even find some sleep experts on talklink.com.au. Okay, let's dive in. What's the relationship between sleep and mental health? Or mental illness? Yeah, so... um... It's probably a more complicated answer than the question suggests. Um, it is, I think that the most important thing to know about the relationship between sleep and mental health is that it is bidirectional. So most mental health disorders um, will lead to changes, usually disruptions in sleep in some way or another. And independent of that, sleep disruption, particularly insomnia, though not only that, can put people at risk of mental health disorders. And um, I think both of those directions are equally important in many ways. Um, Although the data is showing that the sleep to mental health direction might be the stronger of the two directions. So sorry, that's the direction that a poor sleep structure leads to mental health issues. Yeah, exactly. So, so to make that a little bit more concrete, what we know, for example, is if you have a chronic insomnia disorder, even if you've never had a mental disorder in your life, simply having insomnia puts you at risk of developing a mental health disorder down the road. And that risk is especially high for depression, anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, psychosis, and I should say bipolar disorder. Um, If you have a mental health disorder and it has been treated and now you're uh, in remission, if you develop a new episode of insomnia, then you're at increased risk for relapse in most of those same disorders, particularly depression, bipolar, psychosis, um, to a lesser extent, substance abuse, So there's something about sleep going wrong that then puts us at risk from a mental health perspective. The other, I guess, piece of that is it's not just insomnia. So one of my areas of specialization is post-traumatic stress disorder. And we know that it's not just insomnia that puts you at risk of having PTSD, 
but obstructive sleep apnea, where you stop breathing at night, also actually puts you at risk of developing PTSD should you be exposed to a trauma. Um, and then if you are exposed to a trauma, many, though not all people will, right, right in the aftermath of the trauma, will develop sleep difficulties, either insomnia or nightmares. And those people are at greater risk of going on to develop a full-blown full PTSD than the people who have resilient sleep in the aftermath of a trauma. So there's a lot of these places where sleep disruption leads to a significant risk of developing some sort of mental health disorder down the road. And you can understand the way you structure that, how complex this is. You know, you're exposed to a trauma. The trauma gives you difficulty sleeping with potentially, you know, nightmare behavior. And then that leads you to have poor sleep, which cycles you back to an increased likelihood of developing full-blown PTSD. Is that sort of the cycle you're mapping out there in that particular example? It is. Yes, exactly. And there are, um, and I can't remember how much we talked about some of this last time, but there are some mechanisms that are proposed and have pretty solid data behind them that sort of explain biologically why is it that sleep leads to this increased risk, particularly in... We'd love to hear those. Sure. So, um, so I need to back up a second and talk about both PTSD and anxiety disorders. Um, they are essentially fear-based disorders, right? People are um, uh, more afraid of things in the environment than what is objectively warranted you know, be that you're afraid of spiders or germs or cars because you were in a car accident. And that process of becoming more afraid of things in the environment is called fear conditioning, right? So we get in a car accident, the car is associated with the trauma of the accident. So now every time we get in a car, we have a fear response, right? That sort of simple thing. Sure, makes sense. The opposite of, of fear conditioning is called um, fear inhibition or uh, uh, more specifically fear extinction. And fear extinction is if we then get into a car every day for the next 30 or 40 days, and we never get into another accident, eventually we start to learn, wait a minute, cars aren't something I have to be afraid of after all, right? That's the process of developing an extinction to the conditioned fear. And that happens all across all of the anxiety disorders that are fear-based as well as post-traumatic stress disorder. So with that little background, what we know is that having intact REM sleep, and we talked a bit about REM sleep last time, having intact REM sleep, meaning um, the right amount of REM sleep during the night, the right times of night, um, pretty solid REM sleep, so you're not waking up a bunch in the middle of it. So having that's what I mean by intact. If we have intact REM sleep, then that facilitates adaptive fear extinction. So it facilitates that process of learning the car isn't really scary after all. If we have disrupted REM sleep, if it's fragmented, if it's broken up into little chunks, if it's too short, then that actually undermines our ability to learn extinction, to extinguish the fear. So now we have somebody who has insomnia that generally speaking leads to disrupted sleep. One of those disruptions is to REM sleep. Now we have somebody whose brain is kind of chronically in this state of being unable to fully learn the extinction memories that are supposed to tell us the car is no longer frightening. So they get in the car accident. They now have disrupted REM sleep, or maybe even they had disrupted REM sleep before the car accident. And that disrupted REM sleep 
they get into a car tomorrow, they don't get in any accident. They think, okay, maybe the car is kind of safe after all. Then overnight when REM is disrupted, they can't consolidate that extinction memory, turn it into a permanent memory so that the next time they get into the car, they have the same fear response because they basically, in essence, the brain hasn't learned that the car is no longer frightening. And so you get this memory disruption due to the sleep disruption, and that makes it harder to recover from, in this case, the PTSD. Do dreams play a role in that mechanism, that extinction mechanism? No, we don't believe that dreams per se play a role in that extinction mechanism, right? So most of our dreaming does occur during REM sleep, not all of it, but most of it does occur during REM sleep. But there isn't anything about the content of our dreams that really seems to play a role here. Um, it's more, we believe, the, the chemistry in the brain that is changing during REM sleep and the function of the hippocampus, which is our major memory center, and the way the hippocampus is communicating with the rest of the brain um, in order to consolidate memories. It, it's much more of that. Uh, on the neuroscience level, if you will, than it is on the cognitive level of what the content of our dreams is. Right. So it's just because we're, we're, we're dealing with the, the REM portion of our sleep that it's often connected with dreams, but it's not that the dream itself is an instrument to help us um, get that extinction to that traumatic event. It, it is correct. It is the case that it is not the dream itself that does that. Interestingly, um, in PTSD, people will often have trauma-related nightmares. And that is, you know, and that's another reason you would think logically it's got to be something about the dream itself that's contributing to the disorder. Um, but actually what that reflects is that PTSD is, is um, to a large extent a memory disorder problem as much as it is a mental health problem. And the disordered memory of the trauma is essentially manifesting in our dreams as much as it manifests in the day when people have flashbacks and they have intrusive thoughts and intrusive memories about the, the trauma and things like that. Um, so it's, it's um, I don't want to say it's a coincidence that it shows up in our dream, but it's not a, the brain's attempt to somehow therapeutically process the memory and that kind of, um, which, which is what sometimes folks think. Um, it's rather a reflection of how the wires have gotten crossed in the brain. Is it a fair conclusion to then say part of the treatment for PTSD should be improving the quality of someone's sleep? It is absolutely fair to say that. And in fact, there's many folks in the sleep community who have been arguing that for quite some time. Um, interestingly, nobody has actually done the research study to prove that that logical link is true. Um, it's kind of the conclusion that we all make from our experimental studies and even some of our clinical studies. Um, but nobody has kind of done this simple, well, what sounds like simple study where you treat sleep first and see if it facilitates treating PTSD. Most of the time, what has happened, including work I've done, is you treat PTSD with a, the typical gold standard daytime intervention. The sleep symptoms are still around. So then we, say, okay, well, let's treat the sleep symptoms now and see if we can get an overall better outcome. And that clearly happens. So you treat PTSD, even if the daytime symptoms are pretty well managed, the nighttime symptoms are still there. We treat the nighttime symptoms. We now get them under control. 
and, and we see further improvements to the daytime symptoms. What we haven't done yet is treat sleep first to see how much just treating the sleep does in terms of the 24-hour profile of symptoms um, and whether treating sleep and fixing REM sleep, if you will, then facilitates the rest of the daytime PTSD treatment. There you go. If there are any budding uh, sleep researchers listening, uh, go contact Professor Sean to uh, to potentially join some research on that. I mean, it seems like uh, such an interesting, obvious area of research. Uh, it'd be fascinating seeing if the data does um, demonstrate that link. You talked about PTSD and anxiety collected in the same um, group of, of core issues. Is anxiety any different in its relationship to sleep or can we conclude that it's acting very similar to PTSD? We can conclude that it's acting very similar to PTSD. Um, there's less hard data around some of the anxiety disorders, but to the extent that anxiety and PTSD are both fear-based, then we can conclude that the same processes are happening. We know that the same fear-related processes and fear extinction happen during the daytime in anxiety disorders, in obsessive compulsive disorder, in phobias, in social anxiety, in, in all the fear-based anxiety disorders. So there's, and we know that sleep is disrupted the same way in those disorders as they are in PTSD, not always as severely, but it's still the same kind of disruption. So there's really no reason to think that the links aren't as clear in those disorders as well. Okay, so those are the anxiety-related disorders. It seems, again, a cruel connection that the very thing you need to improve the disorder is good quality sleep, and that's affected by potentially the nightmares, which, you know, it's just cycles. Like, it's a snowball. It seems like a cruel, exactly right. such a cruel interplay there. Um, you also touched on mood disorders, so things like depression. Can you go into that a little bit more? What's the relationship between depression and sleep? Yeah, so... Um similar in some ways. So again, if you have insomnia, you are at greater risk of developing a depressive disorder, even if you've never had one in your life. One of the key symptoms of depression is either sleeping too much or sleeping too little. So it has a very direct relationship in that direction as well. And then there is bipolar disorder, which is also a mood disorder. So a bipolar disorder for listeners who aren't uh, quite as familiar with it. That is sometimes called manic depression. It's when you've got periods of highs and periods of real lows, and you swing back and forth between those two with some frequency. Sleep disruption, particularly the loss of sleep. So even it doesn't even have to be insomnia. It can just be um, not getting enough sleep opportunity for some reason or another. But that loss of sleep puts people at risk, particularly of um, the manic phases, the high phases in bipolar disorder are particularly triggered by a lack of sleep, whether that lack of sleep comes from insomnia or comes from just staying out partying all night um, or staying up studying all night for that matter. So that there seems to be kind of a sleep deprivation link to the highs. And then the insomnia seems to, again, be a risk factor for the lows, just like it is in a, in a major depressive disorder. Right. So skipping out on sleep can potentially drive you to mania. Insomnia, so skipping out of sleep because you have opportunity, but you just can't bring yourself like we discussed in our first conversation, that could take you to the lows. Correct. 
And again, you're saying the data out there saying that it's causal that poor sleep habits could potentially trigger a bipolar where someone's potentially predisposed to that condition anyways. Uh, Correct. And I think that the last piece you said is really important. Somebody who is predisposed for that condition already, it's not going to having sleep disruption, pulling all nighters, isn't going to um, create a bipolar disorder where there's no genetic predisposition to have that in the first place. Right. Okay. In terms of personality disorders, um, you know, the, the antisocial personality, so psychopathy or borderline or narcissism, is there any relationship between sleep and, and that group of, of conditions? Yeah. So the data is much less clear there. I think it is clear that people with borderline personality disorder often have sleep disruption. They often have insomnia. They often have nightmares. However, those folks also often have post-traumatic stress disorder or bipolar disorder or some other comorbid mental health condition. And so the chicken and the egg is particularly tough in personality disorders in part because personality disorders by definition start very early in life. And so it's a little hard to track longitudinally if developing a sleep issue then puts you at greater risk of the personality disorder or if the personality disorder and um, the chaos that comes with some of those personality disorders predispose you to sleep problems. I, I just don't think we have necessarily a good handle on the directional part of that. Yeah. I know there's a, you know, the archetype of the night stalker who is, you know, a psychopath roaming the streets at night committing crime. Um, And I I wondered whether the fact that they are often awake at nighttime has anything to do with a sleep disturbance linked to that personality disorder. Is there anything specifically around psychopathy and sleep or um, not needing as much sleep? I haven't seen anything like that, no. And I don't know that the, if you're thinking of sort of the antisocial personality disorder, um, I don't even know that the archetype, as you called it, of the person stalking around in the middle of the night to ne'er do well is even behaviorally necessarily what you see, right? I think that you see just as much disturbance during the daytime that you do at night. I think it's, uh, you know, literature and movies and stuff uh, gravitate towards the night because the night's a natural time. We're all a little more frightened in the first place, right? So it's a little bit easier to put the boogeyman at night. But I don't know that the data bears out that it's necessarily rhythmic like that. Mm, that's well stated. So you've you've very, very clearly painted for us the story of the direction of how sleep can result in certain types of mental illnesses Um, you touched on the fact that it goes the other way as well that certain conditions cause poor sleep patterns Um, can you can you expand on that a little bit more I mean it sort of seems self-evident but are there any parts that might surprise us or would not necessarily be the obvious conclusion there well so I, I think some of the reasons that the the mental health leads to poor sleep will to some extent, depend on the mental health problem. But one of the common denominators across mental health problems is rumination. So uh, being unable to turn your brain off, just thinking and thinking and thinking, right? And when you're depressed, the thoughts that you're thinking about might be different than when you're anxious 
um, right? So when you're depressed, you may be thinking of, may have a lot of negative self thoughts or a lot of negative thoughts about uh, the world and, and other people and things that have gone wrong in your life. Whereas anxiety, for example, your, your rumination, your thoughts you can't turn off might be about stress related to work tomorrow or um, the stupid things that you said today that are causing you stress. And, you know, so the content's a little bit different depending on the disorder, but this idea that I can't turn my brain off um, is common across a lot of the mental health disorders and is one of the fundamental drivers of a chronic insomnia. Um, and we think it's one of the fundamental things that takes somebody from acute insomnia. So most of us in our life at some point will have acute insomnia. We'll have a short bout of a few days where we just can't sleep for whatever reason. Usually it's stress related. Um, one of the things that leads from that short-term bout of being unable to sleep to a long-term chronic insomnia actually is when the rumination kicks in and you can't turn it off. Because what that does typically is see you lying in bed, ruminating, stressed out, frustrated that you can't sleep, depressed, anxious, angry, whatever it is. And all of those things then contributing to the poor sleep actually tricks the brain into believing, I shouldn't say tricks, it conditions the brain into believing that the bed is not a place to be relaxed and comfortable and sleeping, but the bed is a place to be thinking and ruminating and stressed out and anxious and angry and depressed and whatever these other things that go on with your rumination. Um, and so the bed eventually becomes a trigger for all these negative things that make it hard for you to sleep rather than the bed being a trigger to be relaxed and fall asleep easily. And I think that that is one of the major ways that a lot of these mental health disorders produce insomnia. Yeah. And I mean, that's such a horrible place to be. I think it's very easy for almost everyone listening to resonate with that experience where you're up at night and your mind's racing and your heart is racing and you just can't calm yourself. And the more you're realizing that you're unable to sleep, the more nervous you get. And there's just this horrible snowball effect. And what you've mapped out now certainly resonates for me personally. I, I went through a phase, like you say, a lot of work-related stress. And I remember, I have this clear memory of looking at my bed in that particular room and feeling that anxious response come up from my gut, just looking at my bed. And it, in that moment, my mind had made the connection that bed is a place for stress. Bed is a place for worry, for, for um, your mind running over and over all these scenarios. Um, so easy to relate to that. Um, and I think, you know, that's partly where my mind goes now in this conversation. I think it's, you, you know, we're kind of preaching to the choir here. Sleep is good. Um, good quality sleep makes you feel good. Not sleeping much can cause bad things in a number of ways. Um, whether you're predisposed to it or not, it takes you to um, places you may not want to go. So, okay, cool. Um, you need to sleep. You need to sleep well. Fine. For me, the, the conversation that's quite interesting from this point is what can people do to improve the quality of sleep? What So sleep hygiene is the word that I hear being thrown around in the media a bit more, which which makes me pleased to hear that it's a topic people are talking about. I'm sure there are people listening to you right now saying, yes, that is me. Help, please. I want to sleep better. What can we do? Yeah. So, um, so if we are talking about chronic insomnia, um, which sort of technically from a definition perspective means that you are having significant trouble sleeping at least three nights a week 
for at least three months, that sort of puts you into to the chronic phase. The gold standard intervention for that is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So it is not medications. That is not the frontline treatment. And I emphasize that because sadly, in Australia, as well as actually most of the rest of the Western world, 90, 95% of the people who go to a doctor and say, I have insomnia, get a prescription. And every peak body in the world who has weighed in on this has said, that's not the first thing that should happen. What should happen is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Okay, great, Sean. What the heck is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia? Well, essentially, um, what CBTI does, sorry, that's the abbreviation, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI, it looks at a whole series of behaviors and thoughts that contribute to maintaining the insomnia, and it treats those things in an effort to reverse the cycle. And so if you'll indulge me for a minute, let me back up. I think it'd be helpful for listeners to understand the life cycle of insomnia and how it develops. And uh, people may have heard something called the 3P model or the four-factor model. This, that's just sort of the name of, of models that tell us how insomnia develops. And, and roughly it works like this. The first factor are risk factors or what's called predisposing factors, right? So everybody has some sort of risk factor for insomnia, just like everybody has some sort of risk factor for developing cancer, but we're not all gonna develop cancer and we're not gonna all develop insomnia. So the risk factors aren't things that we typically deal with that much. The next factor is the precipitating event or the thing that kicks off the initial bout of insomnia. So you gave the example a minute ago of work stress. That's the same one I used. Generally, any kind of stressor might lead to an understandable response of having a hard time sleeping. So it could be work stress, it could be a relationship stress, it could be financial stress, it could be a chronic stressor like um, chronic systemic racism that you're facing. It could even be a good stressor. Planning a wedding, for example, is good, but it's really stressful. Um, so any of these things that, that are stressful can lead to short periods of time being unable to sleep. And just as I said earlier, for most people, when that stress goes away, their sleep goes back to normal. But for say 10 to 15% of people, the stress goes away and yet they still develop a chronic insomnia and have a hard time sleeping. Why is that? That is what we call a series of perpetuating factors, or in other words, things that maintain the insomnia. We talked about one of them already, which is this rumination and conditioning the bed to, to be a sign of stress, but there's some others. So one type of perpetuating factor are things that people start to do when they first have a hard time sleeping in order to try to counteract their period of insomnia. So they might go to bed early one night, they might sleep in, they might take naps during the day. These are all sort of totally understandable responses to a short period of being unable to sleep. Unfortunately, which we'll talk about in a second, they end up making the problem worse. The second type of, of maintaining factor or um, perpetuating factor are things that people do during the day to make up for the fact that they had a bad night of sleep last night. Right? So this could be drinking way too much caffeine. It could be napping. It could be um, being really sedentary because you feel like you just don't have the energy to get up and, and do things. The third type of, of maintaining factor is anything somebody does in bed 
other than sleep. So we already talked about the ruminating, the stressing, the, the negative emotions, all that. That's kind of obvious. But even something like watching TV, reading, talking to your partner, right? I talked to lots of couples where they feel like, the, particularly ones with young kids, right? The only time they have to be alone and talk to each other is when they're sitting in bed about to go to sleep. Um, any of those things, though, contribute to the brain learning the bed is not a place to sleep. It's a place to be awake. It's a place to talk to my partner. Sometimes those talks don't go so well. Um, and so it leads to the stress, uh, but it, it, maybe it's a place to read or eat TV or play on my phone or whatever it is, but it's not a place to sleep. The bed's a place to do all of these wakeful activities. And then the last type of perpetuating factor is the things we've already been talking about, mental health disorders that are not well-treated. And I would pair with that physical health disorders that are not well treated that interfere with sleep. So there's all of these things that can contribute to turning an acute episode of insomnia into a long-term chronic episode of insomnia. And what we do when we treat insomnia, getting back to your original question, um, is we examine all of these factors that are maintaining the insomnia. We figure out for the person sitting in front of us, which of these factors are the relevant ones. And then we start to treat those. And there are some really stock standard ways that we treat just about everybody because they, they cover so many of the key factors. And then there is, um, the individualization where we think about, okay, what else is going on for this person? What are the special things that we need to be doing to tackle their specific type of insomnia? You talked about sleep medication not being part of that story. Um, th this model that you've mapped out makes sense. Uh, it makes sense that it's an individual by individual solution. I understand the talk therapy part of it. There's two other pieces that my mind goes to straight away. The first is, can you circle back to the, the drugs why is sleep medication not effective? And then the second one is there's a lot of talk about meditation and mindfulness. Um, in your experience, does this form part of that solution strategy and how effective is it? Yeah, so first the meds. So um, I should definitely clarify, the meds are less effective in the long term than is the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Meds can be very effective in the short term. And in fact, the thing they are best for is a short-term intervention when you really just have a small period of stress, you're trying to get over the hump, um, or you really need to sleep tonight because you've got that big thing tomorrow that you need to do and you're struggling to sleep. Those are the things that that medication are, is really good for and is really meant for. There's a few medication that even shows that, you know, if you take it most nights, even for up to a year or so, it, it seems to keep working. But the big problem with the medications is they actually never fix the problem. What they, they are, um, I don't mean it this pejoratively, but they're essentially the Band-Aid, right? They're, they're kind of treating the symptom. They're not treating the wound. Whereas in order to correct the insomnia and get somebody to be a normal, good sleeper again, you have to go in and fix all of the behaviors that are broken. Because ultimately, insomnia really is a behavior problem. And so if you never fix those behaviors, as soon as the person goes off the medication, the behaviors are still there, the insomnia is gonna come right back. Um, and that's why really the behavioral interventions are considered the frontline treatment. And it's only when those aren't working 
um, that you would think about long-term medication management because there's probably something else underlying the insomnia besides simply the behavior and the cognitions. There may be some medical issue or something that, that our behavioral treatments just can't resolve. So, so I think that's the medication question. Right. Uh, actually, just on the medication still then, um, do we have science that can demonstrate to us that it is not interfering with our sleep in the way that alcohol may, which is you know a form of self-medication? We talked about that in the first conversation, and you, you mentioned that it might help you fall asleep, but it actually impacts the quality of sleep. Do we have enough science that we can put a hand on our heart and say the sleep medication out there will help us in the short term, whilst it may not affect the behavior, actually sleep and have good quality sleep? No. So they definitely none of the medications out there are like alcohol, where by the end of the night, alcohol has done more harm than good to your sleep. The, the, the sleep medications on the market, definitely the prescription ones anyway, that have been through the TGA and, and officially approved are definitely not like that. They, they do what they say they would do. Um, the question that often comes up is, do they give me natural sleep? Uh, and I think what people really mean by that is, um, are my sleep stages, I think we talked a little bit about last time, the different stages of sleep and the cycle, the way the stages cycle across the course of the night. People want to know, is that going to be the same? Is it going to give me that? And there the answer is not always yes. Um, in fact, it's probably often not the case. Now, it doesn't mean, however, that the sleep you get on the sleep medication is worse for your daytime function than a natural sleep cycle would be. Um, and it certainly doesn't mean that it's worse. And in fact, it's almost always going to be better than having had a night of insomnia. The one, the sort of caveat to that is some of these drugs have hangover effects in the morning. So you might be extra groggy in the morning. You might be slightly at higher risk driving first thing in the morning. And so people need to talk with their physicians about that um, and whether given their lifestyle and what they have to do in the morning and stuff, there's some sort of risk that they need to mitigate there. But, but other than that, yes, the medications, when you take them, generally do what they say they're going to do, which is they either help you fall asleep or they help you stay asleep, depending on the medication. Um, and they give you, if not a natural night of sleep, they give you a more robust night of sleep than you would have had otherwise. Okay, so that makes sense for the medication. Um, what about meditation? Is it effective? What does the science out there say? And what do you personally think about meditation as an instrument to help someone sleep? One of the common strategies used in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is stress reduction and relaxation techniques, right? So we talked a little bit earlier about how many insomnias are characterized by this rumination and stress in bed, around bedtime, even if you're not in bed, around the bedtime, right? And so targeting that stress, that rumination, that anxiety can often be very helpful. And my personal view clinically essentially is there are tons of different stress reduction, relaxation techniques out there. And whichever one you like and you are willing to practice is likely to be effective in helping to reduce your stress and anxiety in the moment. And so meditation and more broadly speaking, mindfulness are very popular these days. There is, there's very good data that 
in, uh, in terms of their ability to reduce stress and reduce anxiety throughout the, the day and night. And so I would say, yes, they are. And, and I should add to that now, there is data specific to insomnia that suggests mindfulness is helpful in the context of insomnia. And so certainly if it, like when I'm, when I'm working with somebody, if some sort of meditation or mindfulness is what they want to do to implement the stress reduction aspects of the treatment, I am really happy for them to do that. Um, and, and in fact, one of the nice things about often meditation and mindfulness is people who practice those will practice during the day which means that they'll reduce their overall anxiety and stress levels during the day. And that in and of itself can be beneficial for sleep, even if you're not doing it at bedtime. Um, simply having lower levels of stress and anxiety during the day is associated with better sleep at night. Hmm. That's curious. I, I didn't connect that. I wouldn't have expected that. Hmm. Yeah, there's um, kind of a, Again, a reciprocal relationship between stress, anxiety during the day, sleep at night. And so higher stress, anxiety during the day disrupts sleep at night. Disrupted sleep at night predicts more stress, anxiety during the day. And you sort of get that snowball. And so you can roll that backwards by intervening, by fixing your sleep. And you can get it rolling backwards, intervening by helping reduce stress and anxiety during the day. Yeah, it's almost like a lot of a lot of these cycles just need to be it's like you need to just intervene and just snap the cycle and stop it from um, just continuing and rolling onto itself like that snowball. Okay, great. So it's all good and well to say, um, you know, get on top of your sleep. Um, if you have insomnia, there's effective treatment out there. Um, great. But what about people who are working shift work that may not have the luxury? Are there any habits or behaviors that they can used to minimize the impact of their sleep disruption or are they just you know tough luck that's what you need to suck up <laughs> is there any hope for shift workers out there <laughs> fortunately it's not hopeless um so shift work is does add a layer of complexity onto things right because essentially what happens in shift work is that you're trying to be awake when your body wants to be asleep and you're trying to be asleep when your body wants to be awake and what we know is that even people who've been on permanent night shift for years and years and years don't fully flip their circadian rhythms. So the brain still wants to be asleep at night and it still wants to be awake during the day. Um, and it may not be as intense as when you first started your permanent night shift, but it's, it's, still, a, it's still a factor. So there's a couple of issues making uh, shift work difficult. One is the circadian rhythm disruption associated with being awake at night, trying to sleep during the day. And then the second one is on top of that circadian rhythm disruption, you can get an independent insomnia develop. So all the things that we've been talking about in terms of conditioning the bed to be awake, et cetera, et cetera, all of that can happen during the day when you're trying to sleep as well as it can during the night when you're trying to sleep. And so um, shift workers can kind of get it from both ends, really, in terms of the disruption. Now, the good news is there are treatments associated with, um, there's something called shift work sleep disorder, and um, uh, there are evidence-based interventions associated with that, and they include interventions meant to 
um, impact the circadian system and interventions meant to impact the sleep system or the insomnia, if you will. And I, I am far from an expert in treating shift work disorder, um, but, um, but some, it has to do to some extent with altering the shift schedule when you have that ability. Um, it has to do with strategically scheduling sleep at specific points in time during the day. Sometimes people will even split their sleep so that they get off, say, early in the morning, they sleep a little bit then, then they wake up, they're awake during the day, and then they have another sleep episode in the evening before going back on to shift. And that can be effective. We actually know that if you, if you sleep extra before a period of sleep deprivation or before a night shift, you actually do better in the middle of the night than if you, um, say, try to nap in the middle of the night and catch up that way. So it's better to bank sleep than it is to try to catch up sleep. Um, so there's kind of a whole host of strategies uh, related to shift work. And uh, like I said, I, I'm not, I'm far from an expert in that. So, um, so it'd probably be tough for me to competently give too much more detail than what I have. It's just one of those really difficult spaces to work, isn't it? Because there are some roles that just require night shift and there's more and more chatter certainly in the media, about how unhealthy shift work is for us. And it's, you know, some professions, you can't avoid it. It's true. And it's not just our sleep it's unhealthy for. It's actually really unhealthy for us metabolically. Um, and it contributes to, the data is pretty clear that shift work contributes to obesity and to diabetes and to other metabolic problems. And then, of course, the sleep system and the metabolic system interact. And so when you get both of those, messed up, then it can, it can sort of, um, it can exacerbate each other. And so, yes, it's, it, it, there's no doubt shift work's unhealthy and, and there is no doubt, as you say, shift work is essential in our 24 hour society. There's just no way around it. Um, and so, you know, fortunately there are, and actually folks here at Monash University, um, are particular experts at understanding the problems of shift work and, both kind of prophylactically putting things in place to reduce the problems and post hoc treating sleep problems when they come up in the context of shift work. So there's three or four um, folks here in the sleep and circadian rhythms program area that I direct where that is their whole focus is understanding and treating shift work disorder. Um, and they do it to some extent at the system level. So they will work with employers to try to implement shift schedules that are the least unhealthy, if you will. Um, and they do it with the individual to say, okay, given the shift schedule that you have coming up, this is when you should sleep. This is when you should be awake. This is when you should drink caffeine. This is when you should expose yourself to light. So they take a very individual level approach to try to help somebody um, optimize their function and their health, given whatever shift schedule that they have to undergo. Brilliant. I mean, that, that sounds like a really progressive path forward. So um, dear listener, if you want to hear about that specifically, hit us up, um, hey, at talklink.com.au, and we can go down that path and maybe have one of those conversations. Um, Professor Sean, the last place I want to go to is circling back to what we touched on at the start of the conversation. We've bookended the conversation with extremes of sleep disturbances like insomnia leading to, you know, fairly extreme um, mental illnesses. Often these things exist on continuums, 
they're like slider bars you know it's not like an on off it's not like yes you i know diagnostically we talk about meeting criteria and then it does flick on or off in terms of its its classification but they usually live on spectrums to the people who are listening who may not have full insomnia and who may not have depression or um, diagnosed anxiety but may just be on that spectrum is it fair for us to um, to sort of circle back to that and say sleep disturbances even if it's not to the extreme of insomnia could result in mood disturbances things like feeling just like your moods at a low affect or like you're a little bit more edgy and anxious than you would normally be is it a reasonable conclusion for us to sort of march in towards the inside of that sliding bar 100 percent, absolutely um i think you're absolutely right everything that we've talked about is on a continuum um, and the relationships are on a continuum as well. And so periods of minor sleep disruption can lead to periods of minor mood disruption, irritability, low mood, whatever it is, um, and vice versa, right? Short periods of um, being really annoyed for whatever reason tonight can lead to small disruptions in your sleep. And you know maybe it takes an extra 30 or 40 minutes to fall asleep and then you sleep just fine. Um, so yes, absolutely. It's all in a continuum. And, um, and I think that that related to that, people can think of their sleep as a canary in the coal mine. If they're humming along, sleeping really well, and all of a sudden their sleep starts to deteriorate, it's really good to take notice of that and think either, A, is there something else in my life starting to go awry that's creating the sleep problem? Or B, maybe this sleep problem is, is the first sign that something else is about to go wrong, some mood, some anxiety, something. So maybe what I need to try to do is correct my sleep now while it's still at a low level of disruption, while it's going to be slightly easier to fix this time around um, and see if I can't sort of correct that problem and save that canary to use the tortured analogy. <laughs> um, and, and when I say that, I guess I also want to be clear. What I don't want to do is promote people freaking out and paying too much attention to their sleep and being over anxious about one bad night of sleep. Everybody has bad nights of sleep. A lot of people have a couple of bad nights of sleep a week. It's not that big a deal. It's not leading you down the dark tunnel of catastrophe. Um, it's really when you notice that there has been kind of a, a quantitative change in either the amount of sleep disruption on any given night or the frequency with which you're experiencing those sleep disruptions. That's when it's time to sit up and take notice. One bad night, no big deal. A bad night once a week, again, no big deal. Um, it's when these patterns start to, to emerge that you need to be a little bit worried about it. Yeah, I think it's a great perspective for us to sort of wrap up our conversation. Um, if someone feels like they need some sleep specific intervention or support, how does that work? Who would you go speak to? How do you start that process? Yeah, it's a good question. And so um, there's a number of very good sleep disorders centers around Melbourne and in, in most of the major cities in Australia. Um, and and um, they generally require a GP referral. So I think the, the first thing to do is you go and you get a GP referral um, to a sleep center. If you particularly think you have insomnia, it's important to try to find a sleep center that has an insomnia specialist. They do not all have one. Um, and um, 
And then there's, there are also uh, a number of uh, particularly psychologists in private practice who are well-trained to treat insomnia. And so that would be the other option. If you know particular that it's insomnia, um, you don't need to necessarily go to a sleep disorder center. You could go to go to a, just a mental health provider um, who's, who, and, and the key is who is well-trained to treat insomnia. And um, at the, the Australasian Sleep Association is um, putting together, that, that's the peak sleep body in Australia. They're putting together a list of providers. I don't know if it's on their webpage yet, um, but it will be. And that would be a, a way to go search. Um, the Sleep Health Foundation is the other is a very good source um, that often will, or I think that tries to track um, sleep providers around the country. And so you might be able to find one uh, near you. Great, okay. I'll uh, include those all in the show notes. Professor Sean, is there anything that we've missed? I don't think so. I, this has been a really, uh, I think, uh, invigorating and interesting conversation. And, and you certainly hit, uh, I think, most of the highlights that should be helpful for listeners. Great. Well, you've been a source of, of insight and, and uh, knowledge on this. So thank you for your time and thank you for sharing your expertise with our listeners. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Okay. Well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Professor Sean Drummond. You can find us at talklink.com.au. Catch you next time.